0: Good morning. Today's reading is from 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 3 through 20. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may ma- may learn not to blaspheme. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Kathy. Well, we continue this morning with our series, first in First Timothy. Building a healthy church. And remember, 1 Timothy now is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a young, timid, shy pastor who's been given charge to oversee the churches, the struggling church, really, in Ephesus, which is a city uh, in modern-day Turkey today. It's all about the church, this letter, who we are, and, and how we are to relate to one another and Us together, the church, relate to God as the people of God, the church. Remember, it's not the building that is the church, it's the people. We're grateful for our building and air conditioning today, aren't we? But that's not necessarily the church. The church is the people. So remember our theme statement, as well as we begin with just this quick review today. This theme statement from chapter 3, verse 15, Paul said, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you, this letter, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And what is that? Which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. We the people are the household of God, where God lives, where God ministers, where God works. The church and the church is to be, as Paul said, as he described and defined it, the pillar of truth the buttress of truth, speakers of truth, those who live out the truth in their lives. So let's look at chapter 1 today, which is all about Paul's charge to Timothy and the people of God to protect the gospel and truth from distortions, distortions of false teachers which cause division and pride, we're going to see. What is a charge? A charge you may think of, oh, a graduation speech. The, the, the speaker charges those to go out and, and live and fulfill their dreams is usually how it, it kind of goes. You can be anything you want to be, right, the charge. Well, charge is a, it's a, a, a personal, expected message of an expected duty or responsibility that you give to someone that you trust. It's an entrusted responsibility, So we're going to be charged today not only to celebrate the gospel, but to work it so deep into our personal lives and our church that we overflow with praise as Paul did at the end of this passage due to God's grace overflowing in his own life, in his life. Here's where we're going this morning. We're going to look at three elements of this charge. Here's where we're headed. We're going to look how to guard it, how to be thankful, and how to fight for it. And what is fighting for the truth look like. So hopefully we've got your outline there. We've got one back for you today uh, and have 1 Timothy open on your whatever medium you like to use for the Bible, whether it's a tablet or smartphone or, or just the books. So let's begin by looking at the charge to guard. Here's our first element of the charge. We must guard against, Paul speaks of, counterfeit gospels in the church well, and if we're the people of the church, our lives too, us. We've got to guard against these counterfeit gospels in the church and our lives. Paul jumps right in here after his brief greeting in verses 1 to 2 with the primary concern he has in this letter for the church. And here's the primary concern, that truth be guarded, that truth really matters, and that refuting false teaching is of the utmost importance for God's people. I can't stress how important this is. In our day and age, you just have to look at recent, a couple of recent Pew surveys and uh, Ligonier Ministry and Lifeway, big kind of Christian organizations did some recent polling of Christians and it's shocking actually how divergent, really you would think that some really essential core doctrines of the faith are, how divergent the views are amongst God's people. One reason. Another, we we have a thousand different voices, don't we? A day. And access to all kinds of different voices from different platforms and mediums telling us what the problems are with the world and what the solutions are. Who's your favorite voice? Think about that for a minute. Who's your favorite voice on big questions like that? Who do you listen to? most weekly and daily for, for, for guidance now toward issues in your life and in our world? Think about that question for a minute. I want to write ponder it. Who has the most influence in your life daily, weekly? More than likely, and I'm okay, I, you know, I'm not, gonna, I'm not hurt, but more than likely, it's not me, <laughs> if we're honest, or any other voice probably in our local church it probably isn't you know one of the greatest challenges for discipleship and for guarding truth in our day and age for pastors it's one of the greatest challenges is that many of us are primarily being guided and shaped more by voices outside of our local church than in it it's a real challenge And I'm not sure we're always prepared to take all of those messages and able to filter them through the truth or hold them up to the gospel. Filter them through God's word even when they feel right. What do you filter them through? Paul's concerned here with anything here that pulls us primarily away from the gospel, the core message of Jesus Christ. How do we know this? Well, look at verse 11 here in our passage. He equates sound doctrine with whatever is in accordance with, quote, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. There's a charge Paul's been given, and he's passing it on to Timothy. So it's the idea that sound doctrine brings to us health. It's it's life-giving. Truth is, it guards the life-giving message of the gospel, which we're all about here at Bethany Church. And verse 5 says the proper teaching and use of of the law leads people to love and love from an overflow of the heart and a clear conscience, and a sincere faith. That's what we want. That's what Paul wants, and that's why, that's, that's why this matters. And What we want to see produced through what we teach here at Bethany Church, or what's being poured into your life through all different voices you're listening to. That's why truth is so important. Here's a follow-up on this. Let's look first at the devastating effects that false teaching has. That's where Paul goes next in this passage. Why it's so important is because false teaching has devastating effects in a church and in a personal life. In this first section here, verses 3 to 11, we're not exactly sure, nobody's exactly sure what the false teachers were teaching in this moment, in this church, but we know they were using... God's law, the the, the Mosaic law, the moral law now, or you could say the Ten Commandments, they were using those in an inappropriate way. And there was an unhealthy devotion, Paul says, he uses that word, devotion, to what he calls myth and, and endless genealogies that really just promoted speculation. It didn't give the people certainty. It didn't give the people assurance. They were also probably taking... Some extra biblical, outside the Bible, stories, and 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 l- maybe legends even, adding rules and regulations onto people. Uh, as we know that as well as we see in chapter four, they forbid marriage. These false teachers. They also bring on these strict dietary rules for God's people. So they were using these stories, using God's law, to to really kind of in some ways, control the people. And what it did is it probably created a class of Christians, those who were following God's law and those who were really following God's law as these false teachers taught it and promoted it. Now, you probably wouldn't come right out and say it, and they probably didn't either, but what was implied was, well, we're not those kind of Christians. They're teaching some things, but here, you need to hear this. This is what you need. We're not those kind of Christians. No way. Or if you have this rule, follow this view view and live this way, you'll be the right kind of Christian. And all those other Christians and and all those other churches, it was causing division in the church. Rather than stewarding, as the word verse 4 uses, stewarding, the gospel handed down and trusted, was all speculation. Speculation. Nothing they could know with certainty. And the result was devastating. Devastating. Verse 7 says, it produced an arrogance. Verse 7, a know-it-all mentality. Confident assertions, the ESV says. About things that maybe should have been held a little less loosely. Things that maybe were secondary, third level. Things that it's okay for Christians to disagree on. Maybe were raised to primary first importance and used to divide rather than unite in the church. Confident assertions of pride and arrogance. There was an ignorance, verse 7 says, a lack of understanding. So it was a dangerous combination, put these two together, ignorance and arrogance. What does that produce? Putting those two words together, not good, right? Ignorance with arrogance is how he's describing the false teachers. And it didn't produce love and pure hearts. Verse 4 and 7 tell us. What did it produce? Confusion and deception. Confusion. The opposite of love. It was dividing the people of God, the church. And the tragedy in Florida this week of this collapsing condominium gives us a searing visual picture of what happens when the buttress of truth, as Paul describes it, is removed We collapse, and lives are damaged. I don't mean to make light of the tragedy that happened there, but what a picture of when Paul says, if if the church is the buttress and pillar of truth, what happens when you pull a pillar out? It crumbles and falls, and real devastation happens. So here is the test for any teaching you hear, with your ears. Whether it's here, because I should be held accountable, and our elders too, or outside the church and the multitude of, of people you might be listening to, if you hear teaching that with an attitude comes with an attitude that causes you to look down on other real Christians as those who don't get it, they just don't get it. Or if you hear things that give you a sense of superiority over other real Christians now, maybe gives you sort of an accomplishment, law-based kind of good feelies when you hear it, that you're getting God more than other Christians. If you hear teaching that, or, that promotes an arrogance or a certainty on things that we really can't know for sure, or teaching that doesn't produce love, maybe it r- arouses in you much more fear or, or anxiety or a separatist attitude, like we just got to get away from all those others, however they're defined. Be careful. Be careful is Paul's warning. Be thoughtful is Paul's warning. Run it through the grid of the gospel, the grid of grace and mercy. mercy. And hold it loosely if it's something we don't know for sure. Especially if it's based on speculation, is what Paul is saying here. Could be your nightly news. Could be the latest self help book. Could be another preacher. I don't know. I don't personally know the voices you're listening to. But Paul knows it matters. He writes to Timothy that we guard the priority of the gospel in the church. So guard it in your personal life so that we guard it together as a local body. It matters. The effects were devastating and destructive. So there was a wrong use of the doctrine, a wrong use of the law these false teachers were doing. So what's the appropriate use then of God's moral law now? What's the appropriate use of God's moral teaching for us? It's a question Christians have debated and talked about forever. Well, if we're saved by grace, what's the law matter, right? You can see how that question would rise in the church. Well, let's look at it. The proper use of the law produces unity in a church and love in a church. Truth produces these things. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. He says, Now we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully the right way. Understanding this, the law was not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Paul says right here, the law is good. It's good. We don't become saved by grace and then say, well, the law is horrible, it's evil, it's bad, it's wrong, it can't save you. Well, you're right. The law cannot save us. You can't be saved by keeping a list of rules. You just can't. It's the whole message, really, of Jesus' uh, ministry and the New Testament. The law can't save us, but it has major purposes, Think now the Ten Commandments. Major purposes in the Old Testament, Ten Commandments, the New Testament, the summing up of the law. What did God say? Or Jesus say, love the Lord God with your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor. This is not about the dietary laws of the Old Testament. It's not about the ceremonial laws, which are not binding on Christians. Galatians 3, Romans 7, the book of Hebrews Make that clear that these things have been set aside with Christ's coming and fulfillment of the law. But what's the proper use then of God's moral law? What is it in your life, in my life, in our church? As I said, it's important. It's often discussed in the church. And generally, there's been a consensus of really a three, threefold use of the law, three purposes for it. I put it in a chart because we were using a couple of those lately. And for some of you that like organization, it sort of helps. We use them every once in a while. If you like it and you want to take a picture of it, even snap it. Some I've seen some of you do that before. But here is what we're looking at when we talk about God's law. We've got a chart here. Three uses, how we describe it, some verses that go with it, and the impact. What's the practical application of God's moral law? Think Ten Commandments. Let's go through them quickly, because it matters. Our first use of God's moral law is to restrain lawlessness and political, civil deterrence. See, described there, use one. In that sense, we've used this, um, this this passage even, Romans 13 there, we've used this throughout the pandemic as one of, one of the reasons for obeying the mask mandate. Part of God's law. Um This use of law, this first use, helps you and I, not just you and I, but anyone alive, helps us recognize boundaries that are good. That's the reason you can walk the streets of Canby at night and feel relatively safe. We're grateful for that. It's the first use of the law. John Stott had a good example. Uh, He said, why do we have speed limits? This is the first use of the law. Why do we have speed limits? Because there's lawless, reckless drivers, aren't there? All you know that some of you shaking your heads like yeah, and sometimes they let you know it when you get in their way, don't they? This use of the law helps us recognize these boundaries, and this is probably the way Paul's using this sense of the law in verse nine. Look at verse nine with me. We understand this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, let's go on to tend to the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. He goes on to catalog there a list of about 11 sins that basically mirror the Ten Commandments. Did you catch that in there? covering all kinds of things. He covers sexual immorality. Now, both heterosexual and homosexual, he covers all sexual sin there in those two words he uses. Murder, lying, kidnapping, which would be theft. And the first use of the law can restrain these kind of activities or when it's applied in penalty when law is broken. But we all know How much power does the law have in and of itself it may restrain for a while but it restrains sin for only so long even in the christian life just ask the man who's tried to stop looking at pornography by just using the law in his life i did it again i have to try harder next time i know it's wrong it's the law it's the law it's the law how long does that work usually you may be able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps for a while, but every man that that struggles with pornography knows that that only lasts so long because the law doesn't change your heart. It's got a use in this first use, but it only works so long. Let's go to the second use because they kind of follow each other. The second use of the law is like a theological tutor, Galatians 3 says. It leads us to Christ It convicts us. So it's a theological, spiritual conviction in the description there. You see it? It convicts us and brings us to see our need, your need, of someone else's righteousness. Not your own. Someone else's goodness. Because I can't keep the law. I know I fail at righteous living. The law is meant to do that. Like the mom who tells her children, don't touch the cookies, and when they're caught, uh uh-oh, Except here we've sinned, the law shows us against the creator, the maker. This is the heart of the gospel. Where we turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, see the impact there on number two? Repentance and faith because the law has done its good work in you. If this is what God says holiness is, if this is who Jesus is, who am I before that law? It's the heart of the gospel, as we said. It's where we turn to repentance and repentance and faith because the law has done its good work to bring us in heart to Jesus Christ, who is the law keeper, who paid the price for the lawbreakers. That's the second use. The law humbles us in this second usage, and we find the grace of the gospel. Some of you possibly, even here today, haven't let this second purpose of the law it hasn't happened in your life. You hear it today may think, I'm oh, yeah, pretty good, you know. But according to whose standards? Your own? Each and every one of us know you and I haven't even lived up to our own standards that we hold for everybody else, have we? <laughs> we haven't even done that. So what about God's standard? If that's you today, give up your charade of self righteousness. Give it up and embrace Jesus. Trust Him to be your righteousness. Well, that's the first two. The third use of the law is to guide us now into right living for the believer now. So once it's the second purpose has happened and you've seen your need of the righteousness of Christ and you've embraced Him, now the third use of the law points us back, the believer, to how to live. It reveals to us who God is, his character, and what it means to honor him, love God and love neighbor. You see, we don't keep the law to gain acceptance with God, but once it has humbled us and brought us to our need and repentance and faith and salvation in Christ, what do we do? We return to it daily to see how God wants us to live. So what at one time was a duty, I've got to keep it, I've got to be good, I've got to do these things. No, no, it shows you I can't do these things and Christ saves you. And then from that salvation, well now what was once a duty, I go back to it now as a delight because he's given me a new heart and a new spirit and a new power to keep that law. And we actually have the power to keep it now to honor God and glorify him. Do you see the differences here? They matter. They're important. And used rightly, it leads us to the gospel which which God uses to produce love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Verse 5 says, "Use wrongly, it divides in prideful arrogance and speculation." As the wrongful teaching even takes sins cataloged in verses 9 through 10 and calls them good. That's happening today with sexuality all over the place. Heterosexual and homosexual, what was once seen as as sin by God and called sin by God, because it is, is now being said, this is good. You see how teaching does that? Sins that Christ even died for. So our first charge, we've got to guard against counterfeit gospels and pursue teaching that unites us around Jesus. The second charge is to be thankful. We must thank God. And praise God for the gospel. Paul turns from the false teachers for a moment and he gets really personal with Timothy. He, he gives his personal testimony in these next few verses. I love it. Isn't that what you actually need from a mentor or a pastor or a friend? Somebody that will get real and honest and transparent with you That's what Paul does here. But he first bookends this section with thankfulness in verse 12 and 17. This overflowing thankfulness and praise. Why is he so full of it? Full of thankfulness and praise, that is. (laughs) That could be misinterpreted, right? Because he rehearses the gospel story. And then he can't help but just break out into a benediction of praise. In the second part of this passage... And here is one of the greatest summaries of the gospel. Here's our point, then we'll read the verse. The gospel is Jesus coming to earth to save sinners with a universal and personal message. Jesus coming to earth to save with a universal and personal message. When you get that filled in, look at verse 15. Great verse to highlight, to memorize. Put on a three by five card and put on your dashboard. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Here's the message Jesus came to the world, which Paul means by that he had to come from somewhere. He came to the world, meaning he was pre existed, he came in flesh to visit us. He came to save sinners and redeem them. This was not a message like the false teachers' message that was kind of speculative or divisive. Here was the true objective, Paul's saying in this verse historical fact that Jesus came to earth to save. That you can know with certainty. That was his mission. And as Paul says in the verse, it's universal in that the message goes out to all. It should be accepted, he says, by by all. It's deserving of full acceptance is what he says there, that all sinners who embrace Jesus through faith will be saved. And yet, it's universal in the message, but it's also individually applied as Paul trusted Jesus for his own salvation as he even calls himself twice in this passage, the worst sinner. Do you want to highlight and put that in your notes and diary for the rest of the world to read for all history? I was the worst sinner. Yet in verse 13 says, yet he received mercy. Mercy. Undeserved favor. Now this doesn't mean actually, Paul's not really meaning here that he was the worst sinner in the world. I mean, there were people that had done worse things than Paul and that have since since he lived. But here's what it means, and this is why it's important for us, because you're hearing that going like, well, that's not me. If Paul's the worst sinner in the world, I'm not the worst sinner in the world then, right? I can't be if Paul is. What he means is that he's been so awakened by this mercy, by this grace that overflowed in him, that when it happened, he became so aware of his sinfulness that he couldn't possibly conceive or know anyone worse. Because he knows his own sin pretty good. As you and I do. He had been graciously disturbed, shooken up, on that road to Damascus when he was stopped in his tracks and blinded by Jesus. Do you remember that story? Where was he on the way to? Arrest and kill Christians. Who is this man? Who was this man who was blinded by Jesus on the road to Damascus? Do you know? He calls himself here, he calls himself a, a blasphemer, which means he spoke evil of Jesus. He was violent and he was persecuting people as he oversaw the death of christians and he pursued them in hostility and he was the greatest threat to the church at one time the greatest threat and i hope as i've described paul none of us thought which is possible yeah well i guess he was the worst i'm not that would never be me i would never have done that i don't think i was as bad as paul or as far away from god as paul he said he was the worst I'm so glad verse 16 is in there. Take a look at it with me. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, there it is again, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to all those who were going to believe in him for eternal life. What's he saying there? Let's take a look at this grace seen in Paul's life. We'll unpack it this way: Grace is seen as unconditional, an unconditional prototype in Paul's life. Grace is an unconditional prototype. What in the world does that mean? If I left it at that, you'd be like, "What? Well, what is? What do I mean by unconditional?" Look at how Paul described himself. He was a blaspheming killer of christians he was stopped in his tracks by god he was murdering christians he stood there while the first martyr stephen was stoned and stood there like this approving watching there was no condition paul had to meet and yet he received god's grace Nor could he meet any condition. He was a spiritually dead man, as the Bible describes all of us. There was no foreseen faith in in Paul. No, he was a persecutor and a blasphemer, he calls himself. And he says, I was the worst. The mercy and grace and patience and interrupting in in Paul's life all originated in God. God. There was no condition Paul had to meet. It was God's sovereign grace just thrown upon him. He wasn't looking for Jesus on the way to Damascus. He was looking to kill Christians. And yet in that moment, Jesus interrupted. It was God's plan to save Paul just like with you. He was spiritually dead. He was in rebellion against God. But Jesus came to him. Jesus comes to us. It's unconditional. Look at it. It has to be. There's not one ounce in Paul that deserved God's grace or mercy. We're not saved by media a condition, but by God unconditionally, lavishly pouring out his grace and mercy. It's unconditional. We might say, but that was just Paul. That's just Paul. That's why we use the word prototype too. And he tells us that in verse 16. He tells us this happened so that we could see him as an example and a display, meaning, guess what? It's the same for all of you. That you'd see me as an example, a display of Christ's patient, saving work. That's a prototype. Paul's salvation experience, while ours doesn't look exactly like his, he's saying, mine was done as an example to see you're just like me. You need God's interrupting grace in your life. This is how it works. I'm an example, Paul said. And this is good news. Why? This is great news. Why? Because if you're sitting here today thinking, I am too far from God, I am beyond hope. There is no way he can show me mercy. If God could take a blaspheming, murderous Paul and arrest him with his overflowing grace, can't he do that with you? No condition to be met. Remind reminded me this week as I was preparing the, the lines from the, the, the hymn, Come ye sinners, poor and wretched. Listen to these words. Let not conscience make you linger. I'm just too bad. Nor fitness fondly dream. If I'd only be better, then he would love me. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you. This he gives you. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. I love that line. There's hope. Or how about not you? Maybe you know you're close to the Lord. How about, I know this is all of us. You're thinking about someone you love who is far from God. Can God save this person? If Paul's a prototype, yes. If he's not, I'm not sure. But if Paul's a prototype, yes. Be encouraged. There is no one who is beyond the reach of God's grace. No one. Because it's unconditional. It's unconditional, and it comes to those God brings it upon. He even has patience for the worst of sinners, so don't despair. Paul doesn't. What does he do? He overflows with thanksgiving. Look at verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. He thinks of his salvation. He thinks of his undeserving nature. He thinks of the grace and mercy of God. And what does he do? He explodes in praise, which is so important because he's even preparing Timothy here and us here for our third third charge. We must fight for the gospel with discipleship and discipline. It's good to hear Paul's words about the king, the king of the ages, the eternal king, the immortal king, so glorious. He was invisible. We can't see him. Why? Why? Because a fight is coming. There's a war taking place. Do you know that? Do you believe that? It's not the war you can see with your eyes. Look at verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. Such sweet language again. In accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Let me just say this clearly. If you and I are going to hold to the truth that Paul began this passage with, we have to be ready to be hated by the modern world. Can you stand that idea? If we're going to continue to be the pillar and buttress, we will be hated by some. Are you ready for that? Are we resilient enough for that? I've been saying it throughout the pandemic over and over again. I believe that God has been making us gather as a church with these minor irritants, the masks, right, to make us more resilient. I believe that. And I can't say it enough. Well done. Well done, to those of you who are here and were here and put on these annoying masks to make sure you could still fellowship with the body, well done. We all hate them, right? But especially to those of you who ideologically, some of you were, some were more ideologically opposed, but we're still here. Well done. You have honored your Lord in obedience. And you have glorified his name. And I believe he was using this time to build up our faith muscles. To make us stronger. But let's be real too. This piece of paper was a minor irritant to what waging the good warfare might look like in the future. Don't you think? And doesn't it look much more like in Christ's upside down kingdom like sacrifice we don't wage it with arms do we Or with might and power and rights no we lay it we, we we wage it by laying down our lives by laying down our preferences for others by laying down our identities and our egos to speak things that aren't popular in our day and age that's how we wage war well, what does it look like? Let's define it this way to close today. Battling, what does battling for the sake of truth look like? Here's first, we must pay attention to the connection between belief and behavior. We just got two subpoints here. Belief and behavior. We've got to hold, verse 18 says, good faith and conscience together. Good faith and conscience have to go together. The objective gospel truth has to be lived out in good conscience Doctrine drives behavior, in other words, is what we're saying. Obedience is the key to assurance is another way to say it. Belief and behavior go together. Conviction and conscience, another way to put it. So is there for you, I want you to think now in your own personal life, and the answer is yes for all of us, but where is the disconnect between what you say and believe and how you live? Is there a disconnect between your your, your public life and your private life? Or how can I be one way at work and another way at home or one way at church and another way on the golf course or one way on stage here and another off stage? How does that disconnect happen? The one who knows the disconnect most is our families. I can think of times being here, being on stage, being at church, having a great smiling face and driving home from work thinking, oh man, when I get home, when I get home, what will it be like? How will I respond? Will I be irritable? Will I snap at my kids? And oh, the number of times there's been an absolute disconnect between my belief and my behavior. Where is it for you? How do you find out? Well, ask your family. Ask your family of God, where is the disconnect between my behavior and my belief? Ask your small group. Be a great exercise to do in our life groups. We have to speak this to each other. Discipleship. Because if we don't, the disconnect that comes up and happens, what ends up happening? We shipwreck our faith like Hymenaeus and Alexander. When our belief is not connected, to our actions. So what's the final one today? We must practice loving discipline that leads to restoration. I mean, discipleship is di- discipline. It's just what it is by definition. Speak, hearing the word, speaking the word, saying the word to one another, convicting one another, that, that's all discipline in a positive sense. But in this one instance, it gets a bit to the, the negative application and more severe. What happened to these two? What happened to these two men? Hymenaeus shows up even in 2 Timothy. They shipwrecked their faith. They pushed away this connection between what you believe and your behavior. They pushed it away. They got rid of it. And the church did what the church is supposed to do. Practice church discipline is what Paul's saying there. It's in really harsh language there. He says he handed them over to Satan. But what he means by that is they sent them out of the church into the realm again, the world that is Satan's. Why? Because Paul and Timothy and the the Christians in Ephesus were better? No. They weren't better. They did it with the hopes of loving restoration, as he says there, that they will learn not to blaspheme. They did this so that they'd be restored, that they might repent and learn not to blaspheme, it says. Do we love each other enough? And love is different than nice. Niceness is contained in love. But love is different than nice. Do we love each other enough? Do we love the truth enough? Is the name of Jesus and the gospel so precious to us that we are willing to go through this process with those who live in unrepentant sin? Sadly, most churches have lost this courage or lost the depth of what the gospel is. They've let slip the idea of belonging to a body for the sake of accountability. Sadly, many churches are more a, a loose association of isolated individuals that happen to end up in the same room on a Sunday for a spiritual tune-up. Not connected bodies that will, when necessary, do the hard things up front to save an erring brother so they don't have to do the harder thing later. We're attempting to recover this ongoing in an ongoing way, at Bethany Church. Not just church discipline, I'm not saying here, but the hard conversation, the hard phone call, the hard confrontation, the hard sacrifice for the sake of the gospel in Jesus' name. For a love so deep that we'll do the hard things to guard, protect, promote, fight for the gospel so that we can avoid the harder. And what's that? the crumbling to the ground as the buttress and truth of life falls together. So let's guard the gospel together and truth. Let's be a people that overflow with thankfulness because we understand and we dive into the depths of Jesus' love and work. And then let's be a people that even fight for the gospel together in humble sacrificial love. Let's pray. Jesus, do your work in us. Only you can take and apply the word. I speak it. We all hear it, myself included. But now you take it and apply it. So do that work, we pray, Spirit. Transform us as individuals and as a body. For the glory of your name. Christ's name.